Uh, Last week we started looking at uh, Matthew uh, chapter 10 and we saw Jesus sending his 12 disciples out with their message about uh, the kingdom of God and empowered um, with uh, the Holy Spirit to be able to share that uh, message in, in a powerful way. Tonight we're going to look at the rest of the chapter, and here we find Jesus uh, letting his disciples know, but not just these 12, but in fact, as we'll find um, the disciples down through the ages to us today, the kinds of difficulties uh, that they will face, but the fact that God is with them and Christ is there to help them, uh, even in the midst of those difficulties of bearing witness to him. So let's uh, open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to read from verses uh, 24 to 42, the rest of the chapter. So Matthew 10, verse 24. The student is not above the teacher, nor the servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teacher and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household." Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Well, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, every good gift comes from your hand. We thank you for the gift of life and for the opportunity that life brings us this day to be able to meet together in your presence, even as we gather here online tonight.
And so we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to receive good news. Please strengthen us for your service. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Christian discipleship is hazardous. Jesus, we saw last week, is sending his 12 disciples on their first mission. But what Jesus has to say is not just for them, but he applies it to whoever will follow him. In fact, he says it eight times in this passage, whoever will follow him. So these are words not just for the 12 disciples, but in fact, Jesus' disciples are in all places, in all times. And the message is a warning. Here are four hazards of Christian mission and discipleship. Four hazards of following Jesus. If you wanted some reasons for not being a Christian, here are some good ones. But in each case, we'll see that Jesus also has a remedy to help us to persevere. And you can see why he wants his disciples to persevere in service and witness right at the end of the passage in verse 40. He says, whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Jesus' disciples are to persevere in Jesus' service, not for their own sakes, but so that they may be a blessing to those who welcome their message. So there will be hazards, there'll be dangers, there'll be opposition, but persevere because in doing so, you will greatly bless those who welcome the message. So here are the four hazards. Number one, for the sake of following Christ, you may be slandered. Number two, you may be subject to violence. Well, number three, for the sake of Christ, you may wonder whether God cares for you at all. Or number four, you may find yourself estranged from your family. Four dangers, four hazards. But in the face of those things, Jesus gives us four helps. Number one, what is done in secret will be made known. Number two, God has power over body and soul. Number three, no matter what circumstances might be showing you at the time, God cares for you. And then number four, there is great reward in welcoming the messenger of Christ. So four hazards, four helps. We're going to have a think about them one at a time. First of all, you may be slandered, but what is done in secret will be made known. Have a look with me at verse 25. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Now, Jesus' point here is quite simple. Beelzebul is a name for the devil or demon of some kind, and the religious opponents of Jesus have used this name to describe Jesus. They regard him as the devil himself. And Jesus' point is, if the religious authorities, if those who are opposing me, if they regard me as the devil, well, they're certainly going to regard my disciples as no better. 
And as we look at church history, uh, you see that the early Christians were charged with all kinds of criminality. Uh, The Emperor Nero famously laid the blame for the burning of Rome at the feet of the Christians. Christians were regarded as atheists because they didn't have any statues of their God. They were regarded as practicing incest because they married people who they also referred to as their brothers and sisters. They were regarded as cannibals because they ate the flesh and drank the blood of their saviour. And of course, they were regarded as fools for worshipping a crucified man. I remember at college, uh, one of the images that has stuck in my head is uh, seeing this uh, image from the catacombs of Rome of a donkey on a cross, and underneath it, it had mocking the, there's this man worshipping the donkey on the cross. Alexamenos worships his god. You know, they, they thought it was foolishness that someone would worship um, someone who'd been crucified. And of course, they were regarded as traitors because they did not worship Caesar himself. Today, in our world, Christians are regarded as enemies of the state in places like North Korea and other places you might think of. Or they're regarded as second-class citizens in many of the countries that are very near to us. Um, I've spent a bit of time in uh, Malaysia and uh, met a lot of Christians, uh, particularly uh, in some of the uh, islands, parts of the northern part of Borneo. Uh, Sabah and Sarawak, and um, Christians in those places are very much uh, second-class citizens in their own country. Even in our own polite culture and comfortable life, we here too are not unfamiliar with the explicit or implied contempt with which Christian discipleship is often regarded. The Christian notion of marriage is the union between a man and a woman, is regarded by some as quaint at best or homophobic at worst. Christian pastoral care provided in schools through chaplaincy or scripture teaching is regarded by some as a kind of corrupting influence. Parents who send their kids to church and Sunday school rather than sending them to sport can be met with disapproving glares. And Christian mission, which over the last 200 years especially, has done more to alleviate poverty, increase literacy, eradicate disease and comfort the needy and marginalised, has been made to bear the full weight of Western guilt for colonial exploitation and cultural imperialism. Jesus says, do not fear the slander of those who are opposed to him and his gospel. Do not be afraid of them. Do not fear that rising tide of fearfulness and anxiety, Jesus says, do not fear. Verse 26, we're told, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Jesus says to his disciples, take a long view. Don't panic. Don't lose your nerve. There's a day when the truth will out. The political and religious enemies of Jesus in his kingdom have long since been exposed. 
The Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes called for the execution of Jesus, claiming that the honour of God demanded it. But it was only three days later that their murderous and self-serving hypocrisy was uncovered. And for 2,000 years, the truth that Jesus announced has been shouted from the rooftops. To this day, there are those disciples of Jesus who will find themselves brought before courts on trumped-up charges and sent to prison for nothing more than confessing that Christ is Lord. Uh, in some parts of the world, it's the, an easy way to get rid of your neighbour, a competitor in business or some other sphere to charge them with blasphemy. Uh, I've had a bit to do with um, Christians in Pakistan over the last 20 years or so, and it's a common way to uh, deal with someone in the community you don't like is to accuse them of blasphemy. And often people find themselves you know, in prison for days, weeks, months, years before they even face a court, before they even get to face any kind of justice uh, in that system. Uh, there was a recent uh, case of a Pakistani woman who was uh, released only about a month or so ago. He'd been in prison for 10 years. And finally, when it went to court, the charge of blasphemy was thrown out in an hour or two, completely fabricated and made up by somebody who had something against her. But Jesus says there's a day of vindication when the motives of all the followers, as much as the enemies of Christ, shall be revealed. Don't be afraid. Take a longer view. Second hazard. You may be subject to violence, but God has power over body and soul. Verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, Jesus, of course, has very good reason to warn his disciples about those who would threaten their very lives. He himself was facing death at the hands of his enemies, and in time, almost all of the 12 to whom he was speaking would also lose their lives in his service. It's worth noting, isn't it, that while Jesus encourages his followers not to fear losing their own lives, he never, ever tells them, to take the lives of others. To give your life for the sake of the gospel is actually the calling of every Christian. Most of us end up doing that one day at a time until we finally expire at God's command. But some of us do it in extreme circumstances. But to take the life of someone for the sake of the gospel is something that no Christian is ever encouraged or permitted to do. Sadly, the threat of physical violence for following Christ is sadly alive and well in the experience of countless Christians around the world. Uh, if you've never done so, I encourage you to hop online and sign up for newsletters and prayer information from organisations like Open Doors or Barnabas Fund or Voice of the Martyrs. So you can be prayerfully aware of what's happening with Christians in other places, like the Middle East, in parts of Africa, in parts of Asia. And the faithfulness of our brothers and sisters under pressure in such circumstances is a testimony to the whole world and to us. And for that reason alone, it's worth signing up for the newsletters. 
here in Australia, we don't experience the same kind of physical threat for our life. And yet we've seen recently the kind of pressures, social and economic and political that can be brought to bear. And I suppose many of us know at least the patronising put down or the social marginalisation or the smirking ridicule. But when Jesus says, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell, I think what he means is in confronting the opposition of others, it is the fear of the consequences of rejecting Christ for those who reject him that should be shaping our interactions with them. We need not fear. We may not even defend ourselves. We live so that others may receive the blessing of the knowledge of Christ. We fear for others what will become of them if they continue to reject him and therefore we shape our interactions with them so that they'll receive the blessing which at the moment they continue to dismiss. I mean, isn't that how the Lord lived? Seeking the blessing of those who cursed him? That's the Christian pattern. Have a listen to this 10-year-old girl whose house was invaded by a mob and burned to the ground. Uh, she said this, this 10-year-old, I forgive them. I pray for them. They were so full of anger, they need to know Jesus. The example of the love and forgiveness and forbearance and fearlessness of brothers and sisters in other parts of the world should be a deep encouragement to us. Those who find ourselves in very little danger, this should encourage us to persevere and to get on in proclaiming Christ. Hazard number three. You may think that God has abandoned you, but you are precious in his sight. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, and even the very hairs on your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Here, I think, is one of the, the great dangers of the Christian life uh, for most of us here in, in, in Western countries like Australia. The sense that God is not there, that he just doesn't care. That in circumstances of trial, of being opposed or unjustly accused, of being isolated or experiencing the dark night of the soul, the creeping dread, you've, you've gone out on a limb and, and that you've been left stranded. And in a sense, this is not something that actually comes from outside, but something that emerges from inside of us. Uh, like Elijah is driven from the Mount of Victory and out into the desert, and from the desert into the cave, until he laments, I, even only I, am left. But to the creeping dread of being all alone, Jesus says, God cares even for the sparrow. He knows the hairs on your head. Do not think that just because he's the sovereign Lord of the universe, you know, putting stars and planets in their place, that he does not care for you. In our world, kings and presidents and prime ministers are regarded as too important to be concerned for little people and ordinary troubles. 
that Jesus says that the one who is sovereign so that even a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his knowledge, that one is our father. Jesus wants his disciples to know that we have a father in heaven. He knows us and sees us and cares for us. No doubt from our side of things at times, he seems silent and distant. But he is speaking. In the world, look to the sky to see his greatness and the majesty of his glory. He is speaking in his word. Look to the scriptures to hear of his love and care and the inheritance that he has prepared for you. He is speaking in his son. Look to the cross and the empty tomb to see the magnitude of his love and the sufficiency of the way that he has provided, the costliness of his gift, the power of his might. God is speaking by his spirit who testifies to our spirits that we are the children of God. He cares for you because you are precious in his sight. Fourthly, the fourth hazard is that you may be estranged from your earthly family, but all who welcome you will receive a blessing. Verse 34 says, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. I hope you're surprised when you read the Bible. Because I don't know about you, but that's surprising, isn't it? Strange words from Jesus, surely. Well, firstly, we need to see that Jesus doesn't share our culture's idolatry of the family. Because the idolatry of the family is not new. Jesus is not anti-family. He's just not in favour of the idea that family is God. Well, that's going to be pretty offensive in 21st century Australia, isn't it? But for Jesus to love your family best will start with bowing together before the true and living God. We are to love God best and to love our family for God's sake. Secondly, what is this sword that Jesus brings? It cannot be a, a literal sword because when the disciples take up swords, Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. What is the sword that Jesus brings that causes division, even within families? Well, the Lord answers his own question just a few verses further along in verse 37. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow is not worthy of me. The sword of division is the cross. The cross which says the world is under judgment and yet at the same time also says it is loved by its creator. The cross which says to the world, you are wrong 
but God has not abandoned you. The cross, it says, in this place of horror, there is beauty. In this place of judgment, there is forgiveness. In this place of wrath and anger, there is mercy. This place of death, there is life. And the world will be put to the test by this sword. Let me ask you tonight, what is the cross to you? It can only be everything or nothing at all. The cross cannot merely be an intriguing idea, a tragic event, an inspiring circumstance. It is either the death of the Son of God for the sins of the world. It is either life and grace and hope and heaven or it's nothing at all. And that's why it cannot take second place, even to our family. You see, what does it mean for the cross to come first in family life? Well, it means that husbands and wives will not assert their rights, but rather give them up for each other. Gladly and willingly and perseveringly and hopefully. It means that fathers and mothers will have a sober judgment about their children, knowing that they are sinners by nature, but dearly loved by their Father in heaven who gave his life for them, gave his son for them. It means parents will model family life around the truth of the cross, that we are loved and restored and adopted and purchased through the powerful sacrifice of Jesus and for the praise of the glory of Jesus. It will mean that children will learn to call Jesus Lord and Saviour, and that they will evaluate the world by the measure of wisdom and love and mercy that they've known in the cross. It means that Christian homes will be characterised by humility and joy and thankfulness and kindness and hospitality and prayer. Most of all, cross-shaped families will be full of forgiveness for all the ways in which husbands and wives and parents and kids fail to be what we wish to be for Christ's sake. It's good for a family to worship Christ first because at the cross we learn the forgiveness that makes families work. But not all Christians belong to families who honour Christ or even want to. And that means that the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, is hazardous for the one who follows. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've had so many friends who've had difficulties in this area. I've known friends who were thrown out of their homes by their parents for following Christ. I've had friends who have been beaten up by uncles and cousins and thrown into hospital. No one knows who are disinherited. No one knows whose families held funerals for them when they became followers of the Lord. Maybe you do too. Why do they do it? How could they persevere in such circumstances? Well, Jesus says, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And that is their testimony. 
Now, perhaps you're thinking how glad you are that your discipleship has not been tested in that way. But if that is what we're tempted to think, then perhaps we should consider whether we are blind to the test. In verse 32, Jesus says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Because the test of our following is not merely what is in our hearts, but also what is on our lips. And not only what is on our lips, but what is going on in our lives. And when Jesus points out the hazards of following him, he's also pointing out how we might try to duck out on those things. It's easy enough to avoid slander, scrutiny, scorn. It's easy enough to keep the peace rather than let the sword of the cross swing. It's easy enough, but only take silence. Yes, we must look to the Spirit for words to say and for the season to say them. We must be sensitive to the outlook of others. The New Testament says that Christians uh, should be wise. Be wise in the way you act towards those who don't know Christ. Be wise, be gracious, be gentle, be respectful. But do not fear. We don't want to go careering in where people are not ready to hear or willing to listen. But we ought to pray for the Lord's help, for a gentle word, a word in season, a humble testimony. And look, I was just reflecting about this before, and Mike and I were chatting before the, the service. Ten years ago, I would have said some different things here tonight about uh, encouraging people in the workplace, but I think the reality for us in Australia is that for most of us, the workplace has become one of the most difficult places to be a Christian. For many people, it's a difficult environment to give a gracious testimony, to acknowledge the Lord, not to disown him. How can we do that? To acknowledge the Lord in your workplace where it's hostile, where it's difficult, we need to pray. And if that's not your experience, pray for your brothers and sisters here at uh, EPC that that is their experience. Lots of people in our city thankfully meet with others to pray uh, in their workplaces and pray for their workplaces and colleagues. Um, I've got a number of guys in our church at Beecroft who work in the city and uh, have got involved with the Ministry of City Bible Forum. And it's, they have great Bible talks, they have great Bible studies, but they have um, peers in the workplace that they spend time with and pray together. Um, and it's a good way to acknowledge the Lord. So in your workplace, be praying for your workplace and praying for yourself there. Uh, I don't know, in your circle uh, here at EPC and other places where you hang out with Christians, but in our church family at uh, Beecroft, we have people who are able to organise uh, events once or twice a year at Christmas and Easter. They invite their colleagues to hear somebody or give a testimony to speak about the significance of these things. I mean, that's wise. It's gentle. It can be respectful and, and hospitable. 
you're in those workplaces, pray. Speak with one another. Encourage one another. About the difficult and testing circumstances such we have uh, in our day. Jesus warns us about these things so we'll not be surprised by opposition when it arises. So we won't give up on people or fear people or resent people when they oppose us. So that we'll not fall silent in the face of opposition. And Jesus gives this final encouragement in verse 40. We looked at this back at the start. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Jesus says to his disciples, you're my ambassadors and you are the ambassadors of my father. There's a great dignity in being a disciple of Jesus and a great blessing for those who welcome their message. There will be those who reject the disciples of Jesus, who threaten and oppose them. And look, the reality is that opposition might even come from family members. But there will be others who welcome the messengers of Jesus and welcome the message, the good news. And for those who welcome it, what untold reward is theirs? Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven to those who welcome the messengers of the king. So as you pray for the work of mission near and far, as you pray for the work of evangelism here in our own community around us in Epping, as you choose to spend your time and money in the propagation and spread of the gospel, as you take the opportunities to speak of Jesus and his kingdom, so in God's plan, his people are gathered. The full complement of the people of God prepared for the coming of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Christian, the way is not always easy. In fact, the way is often hazardous. But the rewards are eternal. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word to us tonight, for us to be faithful in our calling as disciples of Jesus. That, Lord, at times uh, we do... Uh, face difficult people and difficult circumstances and um, at times we uh, do feel doubts about whether you are really with us and yet Lord as we read your word tonight we are reminded again of all that you have done for us in Jesus we are reminded again of your promise to always uh, be with us uh, even to the, uh, the ends of the earth and that Father that you call us uh, as your people to wisely, gently and respectfully share the hope that we have in Christ. And Lord, sometimes people will reject that message and unfortunately sometimes that means that they will even reject us. But we know that you love us and that you have given us both in this life and indeed in the life to come, all that we need so that we might uh, be loved by you and so that we might know you uh, as our Father in heaven. And so, Father, just um, encourage us and uh, help us as we seek to be your disciples wherever you send us and wherever you place us. 
We ask for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.